0: Hello, okay, yeah, uh, today is a show of Thomas Arnitka, actually, it's 18th of Thomas, and uh, I uh, was wondering, I was trying to think who I should do the bio of, which is being sponsored today by Henry Rosenberg, this is Nam's mom's uh, yard site, two days ago, uh, and he wanted specifically for the bios. And I can't do it if I don't get into the mood of it. I was looking this and that and the other. And then all of a sudden, I came across the fact that today, on 18th of Thomas, is a Kapach, Rabbi Kapach. And that's somebody <clears throat> I could sink my, my teeth into. And most of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. And so that's what I'm going to, I'm going to devote today's on podcast to or to a, a video. I'm talking about rabbi Yosef Kapach, who died about 20 years ago, something like that, with Yemenite, Tamini. and basically, I would say, he was the most famous Yemenite rabbi of the 20th century, I suppose. Which is sad because there may have been people bigger than him, but is one you ever heard of that has to do with the fate of Yemenite jewelry. Uh, even though I hold from a belt, so let's get down to business we're talking about somebody who was a yemenite who moved when he was 25 years old to israel kapach uh, yosef kapach was born in uh, yemen in 1917. uh i hesitate sometimes to do the timonim simply because it's a whole world by itself it's all partial it's like a parallel universe uh, they had their own so to speak their own system of keeping judaism very strong century after century back to the middle ages even you've heard that the ramam wrote to them the letter of yemen there was a long community at that time and they have like that like it's a parallel universe and unless you're prepared so let's put it this way many of us are ashkenazi centric okay it's but you some are Sephardi centric even the Sephardim don't know about the Yemenites though because the Yemenites are not Sephardim. so you can say i resent the fact you only talk about the Lithuanians and the casino and all the rest of it. What about us in Morocco or Tunisia? Yeah, but you guys don't talk about the Tehman name either. <laughs> you see, everybody's prejudiced against someone else. So Taman especially in the area of Jewish scholarship, is very interesting because you don't hear many names simply because they're far off. doesn't mean there weren't big scholars among them. They just don't get the kind of play that um, that others will. Uh, you have to be born in the right place at the right time. To get the PR. Now, specifically, if you went back 150 years ago to Yemen, which is in the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, you got to do your own geography there. It's most unusual because the Arabian Peninsula, which you call today Saudi Arabia plus the extra parts, is where Islam started. Once upon a time there were Jews all over the place there. But once the Islamic religion started, Mohammed said, or he's supposed to have said, and no two religions in Arabia. You get it? There's only room for one. And the Jews were either destroyed or kicked out or forcibly converted in the area that you and I call Saudi Arabia today. Classic Arabia, Mecca, Medina, all that business. But in the ends of the peninsula, the southern part, Yemen and Aden and now. So some become a tourist spot. Uh, Abu Dhabi and also all the fromies are going there, you know, ever since they opened the the, the super hotels, uh, I don't know anybody he says, oh, I want to go to, to, to Abu Shmabi or something. So now you have tiny communities. Yemen was the exception that somehow or other, for reasons that I won't go into now, there was an exception Jews could live. The locals were okay with them. I wouldn't say they bothered him too much. It's an Islamic environment, so you gotta mind your, you know, p's and q's, and not be uppity and all that. But if you knew what you were doing, you could live a full Jewish life. Uh, the Muslims expected the Jews to stick to themselves. That's what the Jews want to do anyway. Therefore, there was created a very strong Judaism in Yemen, <clears throat> time of Mohammed before. And obviously they all married each other. Now, um, I'll say this. For a long time, there was a strong tradition of Torah learning in Yemen. People don't know this. Not in the context of yeshivas. They didn't have yeshivas. That's a model that was elsewhere. In Yemen, everybody learned in their shul. I mean, even a little guy took off time every day to spend two hours or something like that learning something in a show. The smarter ones learn smarter stuff, the dumber ones learn dumber ones. It's quite remarkable. And so you had among the wide, you know, ranges of the Jewish population, people knew a lot. It's it's not what you think. You go to Israel today, they've been screwed over by Ben-Gurion, quote-unquote. It wasn't like that. Okay? And um, they developed their own system of training rabbis and and that sort of thing it's it's a very it's a whole story by itself anyway uh, if you go back 150 years to so our hero's uh, grandfather was a rabbi in Yemen they all call different names doesn't matter and he was a rabbi in the capital city in Sana, and very big Talmud Chachon. if you look at the learning schedule he yeah, has crazy very big Tamil Kochum. Shaz and Poskim, that kind of thing. And what's interesting is he met um some non from Jewish travelers who went through the region from France and elsewhere. And uh by the time it's all over, he became convinced that the whole Kabul is baloney. As many Orthodox Jews do today. Um I get these emails all the time. Uh, in other words, the Zohar, everything's all baloney. Now, Kabbalah had hit Yemen around the time of the Rizal, a little earlier. And so, therefore, it's a firm thing. You can't say that. He said, I'm saying it. And therefore, heck would Kabbalah, go for the Rambam. You get it? The true way of Judaism, we found the Mornavuchim, those kind of things. The medieval Spanish-Jewish philosophical tradition. All hell broke loose. And the Yemenite community was split on this. Nobody denied that he's a very big Thomas and he was a Rosh Bates and all the rest of it. But they held that this is Kfira, Uh Because all Klai's was accepting the Zohar, the Rizal, and all the rest of it. This is a very controversial figure. He lived from 1850 to 1931. That's a long time. That's 81 years. 1850 to 1931. His son, the father of our hero, was already... Now, everybody I'm talking about in this story is very from, very observant, Shabas. Shabbos, admits it's not even a question. Not even a question. Within that framework, there's a right wing and a left wing and all the rest of it. It's a very interesting story. And if you've ever seen a picture of this rabbi's son, David, he dressed with a, a fez, which was very modern in that part of the world. That was, like, super modernish. And uh, 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 shaven. See, he wanted to be what we would call today modern orthodox. I don't mean modern orthodox like you have in the West. No, so Right? Which was very from, but very Maimonidean, and also committed to mastering Limure Echol as well, as the Rambam did. You see, they took the Rambam like literally a role model. And he started a school, and again, all hell broke loose. There was big fights about this. I'm going back 120 years. These are the years nobody of you would know anything about when Yemen was reinvaded by the Ottoman Turkish army and whatever. A lot of fighting going on. So our hero was born in 1917, smack in the middle of the First World War, which was not the war that was being waged in Yemen. The war that waged Yemen was between different tribes. His father died when he's one years old. This modern guy with the Fez. His mother died a little bit later. So here's somebody growing up 1917, 1920, 1920s. Uh, a Yasan. <clears throat> and from a very early age on, obviously he was a genius. Um as oh, we won't be talking about it. So he became attached to the grandfather, who was still alive. The grandfather made it till eighty one. To another, the grandfather died in 1931. This guy I'm talking about was born in 1917 to do the arithmetic. And the grandfather, who was this controversial guy, was again, the Av Bezdin, the Big Pose, the Bucky Bashas, and the unbelievable Masmid. So this kid picked it up from him. Alright? So it's like a genius grandson of a genius grandfather. He's always hanging around and listening to the shiram. It's not a don't ask me what day school you went to. Don't ask me what yeshiva he went to. That's not how the system worked over here. This is literally that the parent teaches the child. In this case, the grandparent because the parent's dead. They said, it's the way it used to be once upon a time long, long ago. It's very interesting. Until so he picked up a bevel from him plus his study habits. All of his life, probably slept three hours. You know, it's learning the rest of the time. In Yemen, listen to this, rabbis were not employed by synagogues. Uh, They still held like the Rambab, that a rabbi is not allowed to get a salary. Therefore, you have to work. Even the biggest gadolim was like in time of the Mishnah, you know. This guy was a shoemaker, and that guy was a jeweler, like Kabbach's family were jewelers. And another one was a tailor. It's funny to us, but that's what it is. That's why I've seen pictures of famous Yemenite big dolem in Israel, they look like beggars. They had a funny hat on. They didn't have the shtick that we have in the other parts of the world which rabbis dress the role. Whatever. Anyway, so I'm already describing something very unusual. A grandfather who raises him, who teaches him the Torah stuff, but also makes sure that he gets, I don't know how, a Limurichol education as well, particularly in the sciences. Because that's very Maimonidean, right? The Rambam would be somebody who was a math and science freak. That's what the Rambam was. And so whatever the curriculum was in the time of the Aristotelians in the Middle Ages, you know, uh, logic, mathematics, all the forms of arithmetic, science, technology, biology, whatever. So this ain't your regular you money Jew. The grandfather died when he was 14 years old, 1931. The family is very controversial because it's anti Kabbalah stuff. Which I haven't even gone into. There were a lot of enemies. Uh, one problem you had in Yemen, which you have everywhere, but in that kind of society, was the mal This is part of the history of the Yemenite Jews also. A lot of mal I'm afraid to say. I'm sorry to say. And so they told him, this guy, they didn't like him because they say he's going to grub be like his grandfather. They say... Um, he's an orphan then their father and mother. So what? In Yemen, the old, old Muslim rules of long ago, anyone is an orphan but gets converted to Islam. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that's one of the rules. In Catholic countries, he sometimes had like that also. If you have parents, all right, if you don't have parents, then you belong to us. And so they had him arrested 14 years old uh, and they're going to compel him to become a Muslim. A Muslim priest, a Qadi, was a friend that found me told him like this, if you want him to get out of this, he has to get married now, today. If he's a married man, then he's not a Yasmin anymore. So, immediately, so he's 14, 15. They immediately married him to his cousin who was 11 years old. And they stayed married for the rest of their lives. <laughs> this is how life is over there. Now he's a married man at 14, 15. You make a parnosa however you do, you know, with that jewelry stuff. I'm talking, you know, the filigree. The Ammonite Jews, like many Jews in the Middle East, were experts. They had become in fine work in silver and gold and all this kind of stuff that I don't know. And other businesses as well. But he wanted to put him a, a lot of time into the learning also. You know, the person working for parnosa puts in six, eight hours a day learning every day. And so, I would say for the next 10, 12 years, that's how he made it along in Yemen. But when he's 25, 26 years old, I don't know exactly why, because I'm going to get the heck out of here. It's the middle of the Second World War. World War II never hit Yemen, you understand? It's too far away. The Germans got as far as El Alamein. That's up in Egypt. They didn't get down as far as Yemen. Um, on the other hand, how are you going to get to Israel? And so he does what the other Jews did later on. Again, if you look at the map, and I can't explain if you don't see the map, um, Yemen is in the bottom of the peninsula of Arabia. But let's say it's a long, um, narrow thing, the the, the bottom part of the Arabian Peninsula. And let's say it's two halves, the left and the right. The left is Yemen with all the Arab stuff that they're ruled by the old-fashioned kings and who knows what. The right was British territory. It was the protectorate of Aden. The British took it over in the 1830s. There was better for the Jews. If you wanted to get to Israel, you had to walk from Yemen to Aden, which was quite a mahalach. Um, if you didn't have a car, and they didn't have a car. And then from there, you can get a ship to take it to Egypt, and maybe from Egypt to Palestine, and that's what he did. But it was so hard to do the schlepping when you walk. These are poor people. When you walk on foot, his mother-in-law, who was probably 90, died. Uh, I'm sorry, not his mother, his grandmother died. He had a child, a little child who died. You know, this is this, this, uh, when I was a little kid, I remember we saw a movie. I've never seen it again. I think it was called Hatikvah. I was a little kid. And so the Israelis made a movie about some Yemenites trying to get to Israel in 1900s or whatever. And, you know, walking through Arabia or something like that. It was like crazy the suffering that they had. I can't remember it all, but I remember bits and pieces. And that's what he went through. And so he arrives in 1943. It's it's a very unusual story. The Tamanee in Palestine, British Palestine. How he got in, in terms of the quotas, I don't know, but that's what happened. With his wife and, I guess, two kids. And he moves to Tel Aviv. That's where the Yemenites live in Tel Aviv. What he do for Pernosa, it's very hard. Very hard. Um, you know, he did all this, all that, and really, he was intellectual. And so, I don't know what they did in Yemen, but New Palestine. He sees that he, basically, you got to get smicha. They'll never say this in the biographies, but that's what it boils down to. And he wanted to learn, and then a the Masuda took away. And this guy, who comes from this most unusual background, ends up, guess what? Going to America's Arab to Ralph Cook Yeshiva. Now, Cook died in 1934. But is uh, the Yeshiva, which was not like it is today. Don't think America's Arab like it is to keep us through God's city. None of that existed. This is in the 30s and 40s, when it was run by... Um, uh, Rab Harlap, who was Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Kiba Rab Cook's number one Chassid and Talmud, Rab Harlap, who was a great gong, a super stroll type of guy, a litfisher and by the nazir, this, this strange guy, a cone, who had the long hair, there was a nazir, and he was a disciple of Rabbi Cook and so forth. He was a Swiss, I think. And it was a yeshiva, not with a lot of guys. And it was a litvish yeshiva. You remember Rabbi Chalab gave yeshivas, litvish yeshiva she were. and they met and they already saw this guy knows a Velt. He ain't your typical guy. It's not, oh, I know this Tamanite guy, where He's obviously from the elite. And he got converted, if I can use the expression, to Merkezerav Kite. Even though, this is funny, the grandfather, who was Mr. Anti-Kabbalah, did correspond with Ralph Cook. And Ralph Cook tried to <laughs> what's the expression? Convert him to Kabbalism. Right? You know, uh and Ralph Cook, you know, was very angry. He said, no, yeah, you know, the Kabbalah is a basic part of Judaism. It's all true, the Zohar, and all the rest of it. But he respected him. Yeah. You know, he didn't diss him or anything like that. So he now ends up in the yeshiva of Cook, but of course well, Cook wasn't there. It was a small place. I imagine he had 20, 30 guys. You know, it wasn't rocky. And he learned up a storm And is a famous that, you know, now at least he gets a Kolel check because he entered the Yeshiva, married man, he was 26. They took him, seeing that he's a bar And in my opinion, I think they saw in him a potential for something which did actualize and that is somebody who's temani, who they can convert to Israelism, And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I mean, who can adjust to the modern Israeli reality because he entered the Yeshiva in... Um, no, as he came to Israel in 1936. So he, he was about 29, 1945, 46 when he entered the Yeshiva. And they saw that they can sort of um, channel him into being somebody who will be a big rabbi representing the Temanin, but he'll be, so to speak, a Mizrahi guy, uh, so to speak. And that's what happened. Because he was a giant Talmud He learned up a couple years over there. He came to the attention of the big guys, Rav Herzog, uh, Rav you know, all the heavy hitters on the Rabbinah. And I mean in a good way, not a bad way. And his family was back in Tel Aviv. It's a whole long story, but anyway uh these are the years when israel's becoming a state they're having the war and all the rest of it but he's doing his thing and by 1950 they've been there four or five years 1950 the guy is uh 33 32. uh but cook never cook herzog arranged that he should be in the dayanut program that's harry fishel look harry fishel now they called Yada Rab Herzog. Dayanut. So in other words, he knows Shas already. You have to understand this is somebody a super serious uh Masman. And um they became a Dayan and they put him on the Rabunut Dayan in Tel Aviv. Because I'm telling you, I know what happened. They want to have a Taimani on there. See, we have an Ashkaz, we have a Safari, we have a Taimani also. But these are kind of Taimani. And for the rest of his life, he was a dying in Israel. He started in Tel Aviv. He ended up later being on the, actually, a year later, he was on the Basin of Yerushalayim. And eventually, they got to be on the Basin Haggadah of Yerushalayim. And it was the top of the rabbinate Pile. Who was his colleagues in the Basin? These are dying. Was Chief Asa Frank, Rabbi Yoshev. Saul You understand? Those big people. So what I'm trying to tell you is, this person who I'm not going to describe now in terms of doing Shiorim and Kedushim and all the rest of they although he had that, he became famous for something different. But he's a heavy hitter. He spent his life as a dying Paschini Shilas in the state of Israel. You understand that they have a whole system of courts, rabbinic courts, in which they are the ones who posken on the Gittin and the Kedushin, on personal uh, status, as they call it. And they also had, plenty of people who went to them for Chosha Mishpat, and other matters. So in other words, you have to know, as we say today, your Dal Chalkei Shulchan this guy, Yosef Kabach, our hero, obviously is a super bucky in the Rambam, because that's who the family was, the Rama versus Kabal, but also the Shulchan Ar- the Shach, the Taz, you know, all that stuff. The Rishon Machun. You can't be a pussy. You're discussing the Shalas with your colleagues like Rebel Yoshev. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And Rav Gorin. And uh, uh, let's say, Tweepays of Frank. The whole po- Adis, if you remember. They, A whole potpourri of big names. Tetzel one on, on there. Big names. So that's what he was. His daytime job which he got a salary, was as an official judge in the Israeli from court system in the in the Botic did. If that was it, there wouldn't be that much to talk about. But now that he had the 95 job, the rest of the time he put into a certain type of scholarship. That's what made his name. That's what makes him interesting to me and everybody else. Because his grandfather, who he grew up with, was this super Talmud Was um, If you're against Kabbalah, then what are you for? So you say like this, um, rationalism. The medieval, rational, philosophical tradition. uh and V'deus, <laughs> Chobos Alvobos, Kuzri, Murnavuchim, Chaz de Kreskes, Safer Akrim, that kind of thing. Now, there's is a whole slew of Rishonim, Rishonim, I say, who uh, defined the Jewish Ashkafa across the board until they were supplanted by the Kabbalah. You see? So, these guys, so I guess, they were not supplanted by Kabbalah. This is the way to go. These are classic works of Judaism. You don't need, to, need me to tell you. And, Uh, our hero uh, his grandfather had already been a guy who said like this these are the main works of Judaism the Rambam is the greatest of Rishonim the Yemenites hold that way the Rambam wrote most of his books as we all know in Arabic with the exception of the Mishnah Torah the Arabic he used was the Arabic of the Middle Ages it's not the Arabic of today he made his business to master that Arabic in addition to the Arabic that they spoke in Yemen. So in other words, he knew our hero, like his grandfather, uh, spoke in Arabic, he talked in the street, Yemen wise. They knew the classic Arabic of, you know, the high Arabic that they use today for intellectual purposes. And the type of Arabic that was used, as we would say today, Shakespearean Arabic. They used in the time of the Rambam. Ain't too many rabbis that know that. Just because you're Sephardi doesn't mean no, you know Arabic. And just because the enemy doesn't mean you know Arabic, and you sure don't know the classic literary Arabic stuff. Just because you can curse somebody out in the Shuk doesn't mean you understand the technical terms in the Murnavuchin or the Chobz or vabas those kind of things. But he did. And he knew that he did. And therefore, one of the things he did, so let me put it this way, he published 75 books. Well, let's get that out of the way. That means he, he worked hard. <laughs> and without a computer or anything like that. But most interestingly, he said like this, I want to bring this um, literature to the wide, uh, intelligent whom I guess, <clears throat> Jewish world today. If I showed you the Chobos, um the Mernebuchim, let's say the Rambam, besides all the other issues, it's very hard to penetrate um uh, it's all a bunch of words it's the translation of ibn tibben from the uh i guess 11 1200s old-fashioned same thing with the kuzri it's hard to make sense out of it now you can and there have always been most of and the chobas the and that kind of stuff no question about it but it's not easy going <clears throat> and you know that the translations are second-rate Because the translators told you that they were. If you read the Ben-Tibbon and these other guys, they'll say, listen, we gave it our best shot. I'm talking about a thousand years ago. Gave it our best shot. It's not perfect, but here we go. And that's why you have Mafarshim and all these different Rishon, things like that, like the two guys on the, uh, what do you call it, the Kuzri, the Kol and the other one. Because they're always saying, listen, they're trying to get at what the Makhabra means, but, you know, the language is difficult, the syntax is difficult, but we worked at here's we come up with. So basically, what I'm saying is, in plain English, if you wanted to master any of these works, you had to really put in time and effort. Comes along Kapach, our hero. They say, "I'm going to retranslate everything," and into modern Evrit, because he's living in Israel. He knows modern Evrit. He went to Yeshiva in Mezritchov, and in modern idiom. And that's what he did. And that's made him, in my opinion, the most important scholars of the last, you know, century. Because it's very hard to understand the Marnevichim, of course. So, what you want to do is you want to get the Kapak edition. <laughs> like I'm holding in my hand. In which case, uh, we have everything in modern Hebrew. And he goes with extensive notes at the bottom to show you that the translators missed this book, missed the boat here, missed the boat there. And you get the word wrong. Sometimes a matter of nuance. And he knows what he's talking about. Now again, when I'm looking at this, I'm not only talking about somebody who's a place like a professor. I'm talking about somebody who knows all the Kisri Ramban. <coughs> and frankly, all the Kisri Roshonan. And frankly, Shas. So you're dealing with a front guy who's a big talent Chachot. And so what you're getting is a major piece of work. So he revolutionized the field. He revolutionized the field. And he made the classics. Here's um, the... His uh, kuzri. Okay. Now, yesterday was um, some actual, she wasn't with Thomas, which is the yardstick of Rabbi Weinberg, who was another rabbi of mine and in uh, Neri's Pearl. And Rabbi Weinberg, who was also his genius, uh, he was a super fan of this stuff. I had many um, memories that. Now, Weinberg was also a Rambam nut. You know, he, he was super into the Rambam. And he was well aware of what I'm talking about, which is the bad translations. And anytime he would give a shear um, and would say you know, uh, those, and the Sefer of Mitzvah said this and this, he said, we have to get a kapach to see what's going on. And I always used to <laughs> bring one to class. And I remember distinctly that we gave him, uh, Weinberg, I'm going back many years, you know, do you have such a minog that in Purim time, around Purim, a week or two before, the Shear makes like a masiba for the Rebbe. They give him a present. And uh, in my year, they gave him the, the kapach, marnabuchim, with the, uh, the, not the way I have it here, which is just the Hebrew, but the Hebrew and the Arabic, because the Arabic is written in Hebrew letters. Oh boy, he liked that one. So in other words, those who are players know about kapach. If you want to understand anything the Rambam wrote in that regard, isn't it? Here's the Igris of Rambam from Kapach. Uh, you know, the famous letters like the Geris Teman and the Geras Ashmad and uh, Chias Mason and some of the others. In other words, again, they were written in Arabic, but they're translated most accurately with the full uh, notations by Kapach. Here's Sadigong. Um this is, I think he created this out of a, one, a one-time one manuscript. Sadigon's commentary on the Chumash, which is obviously very important. It's very short. As you can see over here, the upstairs is small, but the downstairs is a lot. The footnotes. Anything that's from Arabic. Obviously, he translated um, Sadigon's Amunus Videos. brand new, the Chobus so I don't know where mine is. It's floating around over here. I wanted to pull it out. I have too many books here. Uh, and the Feldhahn, maybe? No, it's Moser of Coke. They put out Kapach's Chos Elvobah's Menukot. That's even better than the one I'm using, because the translation is actually better, even though the one I'm using is also good. Um, so this is it. The, as far as I'm concerned, me, myself, and I, the main thing by far, which he made a revolution in, is the three volumes here, making picking up. Of the Rambam's Pirish Mishnah is. Okay? This is a revolution. Because everybody knows the Rambam wrote a Pirish on the Mishnah. You can imagine how important it is we're talking about the Rambam. Everybody, and it was written in Arabic when he was young. Now, I say Arabic again in Hebrew letters, but in Arabic language. It's notorious, and it's been for centuries, that the translations are junky. Even the translators say in the introduction, we did a junky job. Except that uh, the first one's drawing, which is from Al-Kharizi, my favorite poem. Al-Kharizi is a fantastic poet, but he's too free imagination on the uh, translation. If you want the actual real thing, it's very hard to get. It. And so whatever you do, for centuries, he's always had problems with the Bums trying to understand the Rambans, nice, particularly when they get to Kachim and, and here comes Longar hero with an entire brand new translation. As you see, of the entire uh, Pierce Mishnai's Rambam, three, you know, throwing money, Nashim Zin, Kachim Tyrus, with the necessary footnotes. And he opened it up. And this didn't exist before. He opened it up. You want to understand the famous intro of the Rambam to the Mishnah, for example, just off the top of my head? You ain't going nowhere without Kapach. Now, if you're a real player. You see? And so I'm talking about someone who made intellectual very important um, contributions and open up a world. And to, uh, till this day, if you're serious, on, you know, you want to really see something, the kuzri or whatever, <clears throat> one of the things you have to do is the kapach edition. So that we call, call this in Hebrew, <clears throat> mahadir. He takes an addition, mahadir, and he improves it. Uh, the, he improves the translation. He makes it available in a way that it wasn't before he provides all the necessary footnotes. In a way, a scholar and professor would do, even though you never went to college. Now, if you're super nitty-gritty, eh, 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 some professors, I'm serious, relate you will say, well, we can do better. There's a guy, Schwartz, who didn't even, I knew Eh, okay. You know, maybe you're 1% better. Uh, you know, I'm not a specialist. Let's give the guy a little bit, a 1% better. That's all. Nine nine percent is kapach. And maybe he's better. <laughs> you know, I'm not an expert in Arabic, so I can't speak to it. Now he wasn't only a translator, although I can't emphasize the importance of this. Uh, he created the you know uh the the uh the new uh safe mistress over here. Yeah. Wait a minute. You know this thing over here, I'm holding my hand to Rambam mom. About 20 volume set for the most rough cook. By the way, he was one of the heavy hitters in a most of cook. I think he he made them played a large role in making them chashop, Uh because he put out all these classics. Here, I'm holding it up here the Rambam's uh, Seferam Mitzvos. you know, that comes together with it. This is the set with the Nakudos, but it's not just this fact it's a set with the Nakudos, but it's the kapak translation, and so it's often different. And much better while well, you find any other edition. Simply because the Rambam wrote this in Arabic. And when it comes to things like the the Mitzvahs, uh, exactness is kind of important because that's who the Rambam was. He was an exact type of guy. He didn't write things to and the He himself says so. he says. He does a first draft, a second draft, and all the rest of it. Now in addition to that, Kapach, as I say, published 70 books, 75 books. In addition to that, he had from Yemen, his grandfather was a collector of um, old manuscripts. They used to go to the cemetery and dig out. I'm <laughs> serious. You know, the Seamus that the people threw away, because he realized these Seamus might be like from the Rambam or something like that. And he brought some of them with them there to Israel. Well, he was a Kisve type guy um, in the Yemenite fashion. In other words, you don't go to the library and the museum and, and, and copy it. He had it in his living room. And, uh... He published a whole bunch of Rishonin that way, for people interested. I remember, no, let's put it this way. He has a uh, tshuvas from the Raivet that he had from some manuscript in Yemen. Nobody knew about it. He has some tshuvas that could do He had the, the the Bali Nefesh, I think, from the Raivet also. No, he published important Rishonin classics, as we would say today, uh, which are important. But there he wasn't unique. The unique was he had the stuff from Yemen that nobody knew about. In the area I talked about, which are the translations, that's where he's unique. Because he was interested in sharing the fruits of what, again, we call the, the rational tradition within Judaism, the medieval rationalists. Who are We're talking about the Rambam, people like that, Sajigon. You know, Kovus Elvavus, the Bermuda Levi. Now, he never, let's put it this way, it wasn't stupid. I don't know what he personally thought about Kabbalah, but he probably didn't believe it. Because if he comes from that background, that's who he was. They say that, you know, when he, I've heard that, you know, when they offered him a job to be a dying, they pretty much had to do like, like a recantation like the Catholics. Notice, do you believe in the Kabbalah? Yes. Yes. Um, but he never got into that stuff. His whole messias was to spend all his life concentrating on the rational parts. That doesn't mean that kabbalah is not true. That means that he was able to carve out for himself a whole career as a post And, you know, they published his child since she was only, I've never seen, I've seen maybe a little bit. Uh, I'll say it again, he was a dying for 50 years or whatever. It's a long time. But uh, um, his main thing was, as I say, concentrating on the uh, what I would call, for simple terms, the Maimonidean Misora, which is how would the Rambam conduct himself? You know, understand? Um, now, you know, rational has its limits, but those are the limits within within which he operated. That seems to me, because he went to America's rub, very from God, but you know, he didn't dress Yemenite style. Then go online and see pictures. I think their are movies about bad. They're dressed, you know, like Ashkenazi Jews. But, um, the Messias, the, the Thompson was this, though. As a Yemenite, it obviously had to pain him very much the fate of his community. Because, it is sad, that they got the Yemenite Jews out in 1949 brought them to Israel. And this is where the Bulgarian government did a very good job of unfirming everybody, and especially with respect. This is a major element in how the Zionists uh, delegitimated themselves. You see, it wasn't necessary to do that, but they felt it was, and they actually acted, culturally speaking, in a very brutal way. And I think today people are familiar with the fact. All I have to do, without going into details. Although if you're interested in the details and you want to just get a, a little bit of an idea, you get the uh, Tom Seger book. He's, he's, a, he's a Chilani. He's anti-front. He's a book, 1949, where he talks about you know the first wave immigrants come in. and He'll tell you all the junk they did to the Ammonites. It's pretty disgusting. But even on a human being level, take the from stuff out. Now we've discovered that they kidnapped the babies. They told the parents the babies died and they gave them for adoption. You know, the Ashkenaz family. knows they acted very brutally towards him. And I want to tell you something. The good and the Mizrahi was all part of that. Because people made money. It was a very ugly, disgusting um, business. But the firm can't go and complain because they were complicit. in all this kind of stuff. It's very, very sad. Okay? So... You know, as the Yemenite community come back, uh, a little bit. I, I'm not a bucky and that sort of thing. I had in mind uh, once, if I did a trip to Israel, which I'm hoping to do still, to stop in Rosh Hashan. They had a very nice museum there and they showed me around. Very primitive, but a very cute. Gives an idea of the richness of the Yemenite tradition. But it doesn't have justice to it. I mean, they need somebody to make like a Beit HaFutzah for them because it's a very rich tradition. Anyway, so Kapak spent all of his years knocking out these books. That's why he won all the Israeli prizes, all the rest of it. And his biggest item that he considered is something that I've only seen, never got interested in it at all, I have to tell you. He put his own edition of the Rambam. It's like I saw it at the Hebrew College when the Hebrew College was still here. like 20 volumes with red covers. It's fat. And you know, the Girsa is even better than anybody else's Gears. Okay, it could be. I'm not into that. You know, uh, because Israel's is so political, see, like when they made the Shabzi-Frankel Rambam, they wouldn't use this stuff. You see? Because he went to America's this, the, the This foreign business is very political, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, that's supposed to be his masterpiece. And he must give his own interpretation of Rambam and things like that. I've never been part of that. Uh, what? But you can't do the Murnavuchim without him. You can't do the Chavas of Ovis, and you really wonder what's going without him. Now, to tell you the truth, I've always used it, and I bet you a lot of people use it in the following way. If you're learning anything, let's say, for example, the Kuzri, then something seems a little bit funny there or unusual, that's when you pull out your Kapach. Now, you don't need him line by line, but you say, what's really going on over here? Maybe the translation is not correct. But maybe there's some confusion in the terms, and you always fall back on him. So he's a major scholarly presence, uh, but was a very retiring and shy person. So um, people like this are really servants of the public, because instead of saying I'm publishing my own condition on, on Baba Kama, let me see which we all make everybody very impressed. Uh, You'd rather spend your time trying to make Rishon, especially the rationalist Rishon, um, more understandable and available to the wider public. That, to me, is something very interesting. And um, he died in the year 2000, something like that. Uh, he lived in Yerushalayim. He had a show of his own, you know, the Taimanay-type place. Um, I never met him. But, um, and, you know, you can tell he's the type to sit all day long writing his farm. Otherwise, he couldn't turn out. By the way, he has hundreds of articles, but I'm not even talking about that. <laughs> to put out 75 farm, most of which I think probably from most Ralph Cook. Uh, because they were all from, and they're all from and people like that. And uh, he wants to enrich, therefore, the Torah literature available to to the broad public. That's uh, That's something that's very nice. Anyway, so, uh, if you're ever, if I've told you something you don't know, it'll be to the effect if you're ever interested in to make a use shorthand, the Chavis Al the Marne Ruchem, the Kuzri, or Sadigon. I don't think too many people are interested in Sadigon, But these are the classics of Jewish medieval literature which were written in Arabic. Uh, you're going to need kappa If you, in your learning, if you ever use the Rambab, um, you're going to have to fall back on Glock. There's nobody else. Uh, the other things are different. Um, and so that makes him, as I said before, the most uh, famous and prominent of all the Yemenites, at least at, at least to my knowledge. Anyway, with that, I bid you a good day. I want to thank, once again, Henry Rosenberg for sponsoring this. It's in memory of his mom. His name was Branabas uh, Chaim. And... Uh, With that, I bid you a good day. Easy fast. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot